Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. In a time of war and high prices, politicians sometimes feel the urge to mobilize the nation to produce goods and services. They can do that under various powers. But would that be a good idea when it comes to something like oil production? Would forcing more oil production be good for your pocketbook? Or would government meddling make a bad problem worse for consumers uh, or worse for cleaner energy? Helping us break all of that down, Phil Rossetti uh, joins us once again on the program. He's a resident senior fellow at the R Street Institute who studies energy and energy policy. Phil, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So uh, the Defense Production Act, uh, for those of our listeners who uh, didn't get out of bed and immediately have that come to the top of mind, uh, what is that exactly and how would it play out when it comes to energy? Uh, yeah, well, it, it's probably good not to have it at the top of mind because it's something that uh, I often try to forget. <laughs> yes. Uh, so the defense, yeah. So the Defense Production Act, or the DPA, is essentially a Cold War law, uh, which is very well intentioned and uh, utilized in the sense of if we have manufacturing needs that are critical to national security, like the production of tanks or uh, making sure you don't have a concentration of uh, risk or assets in a specific location. Uh, the DPA allows the federal government to essentially force a transition, force uh, manufacturers or suppliers to uh, do what's in the national interest for uh, you know, interim national security needs. Uh, this has been used you know, a few times in the past, uh, usually without much fanfare, just kind of addressing you know, typical situations. Uh, and its most common usage is actually post-disaster relief where, mm. you know, you need to get food or medicine somewhere and the government just says, okay, this is uh, DPA territory. And oftentimes the companies actually welcome that because they can then tell the people they have to break contracts with or say, hey, you know, it's out of our hands. And they don't have to quibble about the morality of contract breaching versus uh, supplying aid. Uh, probably the most notable sort of recent usage of the DPA was to try to increase the production of ventilators and, uh, and have these uh, national security contracts for COVID. Uh, this has come into the news again recently, though, as some politicians are saying, hey, maybe we can use this to spur oil production or natural gas production. Some people even saying clean energy production. And this isn't the first time we've heard this because uh, during the Trump administration, when they were trying to uh, increase coal production, help these coal companies, they were also considering the DPA for these purposes. 
uh, but there are limits to the effectiveness of the policy in this realm. Yeah, so let's let's dig into that uh, in terms of some of the ramifications, some of the downstream uh, impacts on that, and and whether this is one of those things that uh, sounds good on paper, but in execution, it might make a bad problem even worse. Right, and I think that's really the key: is are, are you making this problem worse in the long term? Uh, where the DPA can be really effective is in looking at a, a near-term risk that needs to be addressed that the market just is not situated for. Or it could be an out-of-market thing. So, mm-hmm. you know, the example of producing tanks instead of cars, you know, that that's something that the market is not necessarily going to bake into its costs. Uh, where it runs into a problem is when politicians think that they know better than the free market as to what the country needs and that they can force transition. So when we look at oil prices right now, uh, the challenge is that this is really a long-term situation. The prices are indicative, the current supply reflected the current demand. And if you try to say, okay, these companies that could be producing more oil but aren't because it would cost them money to do so, that they should just do this, that's gonna have a, a couple bad impacts on the market. One is that you're either going to have to move those costs around to taxpayers somehow, uh, or you're going to have to have these companies take a loss, which could impact their future production. But the bigger impact, you know, number two, is that you're undercutting the effectiveness of price signals in the market. Now, every time we buy something, we look at the price of it, and that informs us on the best way to adjust our behavior, whether it's our consumption or buying an alternative. That incentivizes new entrants into markets. You're telling you know new producers, hey, oil prices are high, we should do more. Uh, you should produce more, try new ways of producing oil. You're telling EV manufacturers, you know, now's your time to shine. Uh, and you're telling people, hey, maybe there are things I can do to cut energy consumption. And those things have more long-term impact. And especially we saw this with fracking and directional drilling. Oil prices were high, the market ran its course, these new technologies really came through and those cut the long-term cost of oil the dpa just cannot do that so as you uh, look at where we where we are now and uh, what uh, what are you going to be watching uh, in the the months ahead whether we uh, go down this path which uh, i agree with you i don't think this is a helpful path i think it's a reactionary path what should we be watching uh, i think uh, probably the more concerning thing to me is not just been uh, folks looking at the DPA for oil production, uh, as oil prices are starting to come down, uh, I think there's, you know, hopefully going to be some cooling of that interest. But now people are saying, hey, you know, maybe we should use this for clean energy. Uh, the risk of that is you could essentially lock in a really inefficient system. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you think about energy costs and how important those are to people's living standards, you want lower costs because that frees up your resources for other uh, uses and improves your quality of life. If you are using government authority to say, okay, you know, these people have to produce this or they have to buy this and they're going to use a national security justification to do it, uh, that could be really detrimental to people's living standards. And so I, I'm just, you know, really hopeful that politicians are going to ignore, you know, the uh, temptation to use this, you know, this idea that everything is a nail when all you have is a hammer. That's I think key is really just trust in the market, let it run its course and unleash opportunities for the private sector to improve production and efficiency 
uh, not try to force those transitions. Uh, so important. Uh, our philosophy here is restraint always works. Uh, and we're trying to get Congress to uh, buy into that mantra. I think we're going to do a subliminal sound blast into the Capitol. <laughs> restraint. Right. Restraint always works. Right. I, mean, I, I think at the end of the day, it's a question of who's going to know better how to improve production. The person who's actually producing the product yeah. or the politician in Washington. Yeah. Great insight as always. Phil Rossetti, a resident senior fellow at the R Street Institute, studies energy and energy policy, always brings it, uh, brings his A game here to Inside Sources. Phil, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. All right, we'll step aside for a quick commercial break. When we come back, Ukrainians, Afghans, and some children who came across the southern border might be able to stay in the United States a little bit longer. Caroline Simon from Roll Call joins us with the details on that coming up next. Stay with us. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.